Welcome to TW Now, where we examine today's news in light of the Bible. I'm Scott Winnale. An ever-burning hellfire with a voracious appetite for sinners is a concept many attribute to the Bible. Many who call themselves Christians sincerely fear the death of loved ones who have turned their back on God, believing these loved ones will be condemned to a life of everlasting torture in hell. But is torturous hellfire really a biblical idea? Or does it have its origins elsewhere, outside the Bible? Many are uncovering the fascinating truth. Did you know that a growing body of evangelical theologians, known for their conservative biblical views, now oppose the idea of an eternal torture for sinners in hell? In the last few years, National Geographic magazine ran an article entitled, The Campaign to Eliminate Hell. The first line of the article actually reads the following. A new generation of evangelical scholars are challenging the idea that sinners are doomed to eternal torment, but traditionalists are pushing back. So, are these theologians jumping on the bandwagon of political correctness, or is there something more biblical to their conclusions? Are you willing to honestly examine the truth behind the fire? If so, stay tuned to today's program where our returning guests will present historical and biblical information on both the origins of ever-burning hellfire and what the Bible really teaches about the fate of the wicked. I'd like to introduce today Mr. Ken Frank, Mr. Kenneth Frank. He's a university-level theology faculty member and a longtime minister of religion. He has studied and taught about this topic and many other doctrines in the Bible for many years. Mr. Frank, welcome back. Thank you. Really, I'm glad to have you on the program today. Good to be here. And I'd also like to reintroduce Mr. Anthony Stroud. Mr. Anthony Stroud is also a minister of religion and a field pastor. He's pastoring churches and also teaching God's people the truths of the Bible, including the biblical truth about hellfire. He's joining us via Skype from Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome back again, Mr. Stroud. Uh, thank you, Dr. Winnell. It's a pleasure to be here with you again today. And for our audience, if you do have questions as we carry out our discussion today, please feel free to message us. We'll do our best to get to some of your questions as well. Also, we encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel today and like and share today's program. Well, gentlemen, let's launch into this topic. Mr. Frank, we'll start with you. And Mr. Stroud, please jump in at any point. When we look at this idea of an eternal hellfire and sinners burning in agony forever, where did this idea come from? Well, it came from neither the Hebrew Scriptures, Hebrew Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, or the Christian Scriptures. Uh, the immortal soul doctrine uh, is directly linked to this idea of eternal torment, and then succeeding generations brought out the idea of purgatory. But it was not until the second century AD that uh, what was calling itself Christianity adopted uh, a blend of Greek philosophy with Christ Christian teaching. Uh, from Plato, the great philosopher Plato, who uh, predated Jesus. And then it was a, a Christian teacher named Athenagoras who introduced the teaching of immortal soul into Christianity. Other Christian teachers did not accept the, these ideas. In 240 AD, Tertullian took up the teaching of the immortal soul, and then he taught the endless torment. So the, the Eternally tormenting hellfire goes back at least to Tertullian. 
And then in, uh, generations later along came the doctrine of purgatory because they, they had to somehow explain how do you uh, pay for your sins of the past life because in Greek philosophy the flesh was considered evil and therefore it had to pay for its offenses. Okay. And so Tertullian would have been teaching probably some 200 years after the death of Christ. That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mr. Stroud, what else do we need to know about the origins of this teaching? Well, we, we also have from, from this teaching's individual by the name of Dante Alighieri, I believe it is. There's an article that we, that we took note of, and uh, the title of it was The, the Origin of Hellfire and Christian Teaching, uh, Truth According to Scripture.com. And here's something that's stated, I think is very important, of what Dante actually uh, wrote. He says, where did, uh, we talk about where did the concept of souls burning in the eternal fire, where did it come from? Well, the 14th century Italian poet Dante Alighieri is perhaps most responsible for modern misconceptions of hell. And it talks about his famous poem, The Divine Comedy, is divided into three sections. And he talks about paradise, purgatory, and the inferno. And I, and I like to just read a couple of inserts here. It says, the latter section um, describes the ancient Roman poet, poet Virgil, guiding Dante on a journey through hell. And here's what was stated. At the entrance to Dante's hell uh, is the foreboding sign, abandon all hope, you who enter here. And then it states, Virgil tells Dante about his tour of hell. I will be your guide and you will follow me and I will lead you through a world of pain where dead souls writhe or squirm in endless agony and clamor or just total confusion, loud noises as these lost souls cry out to die again. So if we add this to what Mr. Frank stated, here's another concept that comes from an individual by the name of Dante whose poem is some type of poem that people have taken a liking to and, and actually believe this is uh, proof, but again, without scriptural context. Go ahead, Mr. Frank. It's important to remember that Dante Alighieri was writing an allegory. The Divine mm -hmm. Comedy is an allegory on politics and history of Dante's contemporary Italy. But the doctrine itself was accepted going back to Augustine, A.D. 430. The endless conscious torment was brought into general acceptance by the Catholic Church of the Western Empire although Eastern Christianity did not accept the same doctrine. Mm. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's um, the concept of purgatory as it made its way into Christianity uh, really is supported by the, uh, the Apocrypha. And that's probably one of the reasons why the Catholic Church kept the Apocrypha in the Catholic Bible so that they've got some kind of support because it's not in the scripture itself. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, Jesus never quoted from the Apocrypha, nor did the Apostles. Uh, those were pieces of Jewish literature written between the Testaments. That is the era of 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. And they did refer to at least one or two of those uh, several books did mention something like purgatory. But it even had a history before that going back to ancient pagan religions and um, it, it was eventually brought into the Catholic Church through Pope Gregory the Great about 582 and then uh, it was given its stamp of appro 
approval by Pope Eugenius IV in 1439. So it's had a long history in Christian doctrine. So it's probably worth for our viewers, if, if they really have interest in this topic, it's probably worth going back and studying the history a little bit because the history does not uh, speak from the scripture. From the no, a good multi-volume encyclopedia would give the whole story, no doubt. Okay. Uh, let me go on with another related question. Mr. Stroud will come to you first. When we look around the world at modern Christianity today, do most Christians believe in this eternal torment in hellfire? And, and I would actually say yes, but I think, in, I think we can also say it's losing its popularity because uh, there are various articles we can refer to uh, with that because um, of what's going on. We, we looked at, I, I did look at various articles here about it, uh, and I was especially interested in one titled Hell in Scotland, and this survey was done by Dr. Eric Stutter, and I thought it was interesting some of the things that he said. He, he, did, he did this particular study, and he named various religious groups who were actually having troubles with this. And he mentions this, he says, the fire and brimstone of the past may largely have been extinguished, but the beliefs that many, and we're talking about Scottish here, clergy, hold concerning the potential horrors that await the loss, continue to be dark and foreboding. All will not be well if that majority of Scotland's cler clergy are to be believed. Some communities, ministers were notably and expectantly different in their views. So even among peoples of their own same country and religion, there, there are a lot of questions about it. Some doubt it, some do not doubt it, some hold on to it, some are dismissing it. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions there, and, and he actually mentions that. And I think that's a, a, a very interesting thing. He goes on to say, the majority of clergy in the Highlands and Western Isles where conservative Presbyterian congregations predominate believed in the darker end of the spectrum, much smaller proportions of clergy in the east of Scotland, where a wider range of outlooks persist, held beliefs and held torments. So you have some that believe that this is not a concept, and they actually uh, show that they uh, don't hold to that doctrine. He said the study also found that clergy did not necessarily follow their particular official doctrine. And that's because some don't believe in that doctrine and are moving away from it, even though uh, their own particular um, uh, groups uh, teach it. But some are falling away. And it says with members of the same church in opposite sides of the country holding opposing beliefs. So I think the understanding of the of this particular doctrine is beginning to fade somewhat. Some believe it, uh, some don't. He surveyed 750 people randomly and found that 37% believe that a dark and forbidding fate could lie ahead for people when they die. So that's not a, that's not a, a lot of people that actually no. believe. No, that's, that's interesting that you're pointing out that even within the same faith, Within yes. the same faith and amongst the same clergy, even if the church technically teaches something, some of them are believing and some of them are not. Mr. Frank, what, are, what have you learned about this? Yeah, it, it has not been universally accepted even throughout Christian history. I have a summary of uh, the, this whole doctrine and its origin from a book and an author named Edward Fudge, a, very, uh, a book that really uh, shocked many people when they read it. And in his summary, uh, 
Christian leaders like Clement, Ignatius, Hermas, Polycarp, Irenaeus mm. did not accept that doctrine. They thought that upon death, that people simply died, that the wicked were uh, dead and not suffering an eternal torment. So uh, then when we come into the Middle Ages, some of the groups like the Waldenses and the Cathari and the Hussites, Bible translators what, like Wycliffe, Tyndale, did not accept that doctrine at all. Mm. So it has not been universally accepted. Well, it's interesting. Didn't the Pope, the Pope sort of light a fire about a year and a half ago by making some comments that seem to indicate he doesn't believe in it either? Yeah, some think he's adopting more what's called in theology of the conditionalist immortality doctrine. Which is? The idea that a person has to uh, conditionally accept Christ's offer of salvation in order to gain eternal life, that we do not have eternal life naturally. Okay. It has to be accepted by faith. And that if it's not accepted, that person just ceases to exist. Okay. Thank you. Let's move on. And let me ask you this question, Mr. Stroud, if you want to jump in to start with, you can. Can you think of any Bible verses that are traditionally sort of misused to justify this idea of torment and hellfire forever? Well, I, we must immediately go to Luke chapter 16, because I believe this is the one area that is widely used, strongly used, even in messages. As a matter of fact, if you don't mind me telling, I, I remember going to a funeral some years ago where the, 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 the preacher at that time actually turned to Luke 16 and began to read from this to prove uh, one going to heaven and then that there was a hell. In Luke 16, verse 23, it, it's brought out here and when he speaks of the rich man. And it and so says... Let me just jump in real quick. Okay. This, this is the story, if I believe if I'm correct, uh, uh, about yes. Lazarus and the rich man? Yes, I'm sorry. It is the story about Lazarus and the rich man. And it, it tells in verse 22 that both of them died. Uh, one was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, which is a very important concept when you talk about being carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And then it says the rich man died, also died, and was buried. We have to pay attention to that. And then in verse 23, and being in torment, Look at the word there, in Hades. This is not some burning fire. When we describe that word, we come to realize that this word is talking about a hole in the ground or a pit uh, where, uh, where someone is buried, and we know what that means. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. We have to understand in Hades, for him to lift up his eyes means something very important, and that is he's going to be resurrected. He now recognizes that something is wrong here. But what we indicate, Hades, that automatically lets us know this is not a lake of fire where he is burning and burning and burning uh, in hell. So, so let me let me, let me mm -hmm, go ahead. Let me just ask Mr. Frank, Hades, can you tell us a little bit more about that Greek word and, and perhaps even the other one, um, Gehenna, that's used interchangeably sometimes? Yeah, it's got a long history predating Christianity. The word Hades or Hades uh, was a Greek god, the god of the underworld, and it was used to describe the underworld. But when the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible was made, commonly referred to as the Septuagint translation, it used the word Hades 
to translate the Hebrew word Sheol, meaning the grave or the pit. So it, it removed the pagan background of the Greek philosophy by doing that. And that's the word that's used in this story. So that word actually literally means grave. That's right. Okay. And uh, in, uh, is in a, a fire that destroys. And it's uh, uh, a word that is, has often been misunderstood. And this is the fire that people need to fear. Okay. Yeah. But that's not the fire that that's Lazarus That's not the fire in this story of Lazarus with. and the rich man, no. Okay. Come back to you, Mr. Stroud. Yeah, go ahead with your thought there. Well, you know, I, I appreciate that because that's, that is very important that we understand this is not the lake of fire as, as many tend to think about. And, and we have to continue to look at this particular uh, scripture, these particular verses here, because this is what is, has been widely used. And I've seen it uh, several times where people try to justify people burning in hell uh, or some type of hell fire where people are tormented day and night forever and ever. This is one area that I've seen. But there, there are other verses that we could actually turn to that would bring even more into the picture yep. about it. Before you go to that other verse, yes. let me come back to Mr. Frank and see if you've got any other thoughts about the story of Lazarus and the rich Yeah, it's sometimes called a parable, but it's, it's not a parable uh, for the reason that Jesus is actually quoting Jewish folklore going back centuries prior to this time when Jesus is encountering the Pharisees. The whole context of this chapter is that the Pharisees are challenging Jesus and deriding him. And this story goes back, and there are at least seven different versions of it, uh, going back to the time of Babylon. And so one of my former students wrote a paper for his uh, university in which he quoted a Sidney Hatch. And um, they traced it back to the Gemara Babylonicum. So when the Jews were in Babylonian captivity, apparently that is the origin of this story. And then there were different versions that came down to the centuries. And the Pharisees were familiar with the story. And then my student quoted this Sidney Hatch in his book, in which he said, Jesus has put them down with one of their own superstitions. It is simply a case of taking what others believe practice or say, and using it to condemn them. Since the elements of the story are taken from the Pharisees' own traditions, they are judged out of their own mouths. And the key verse in, the, at the, in, in these stories, they often have one key verse, and that verse is verse 31 of Luke 16. Jesus, and he said to him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for not believing their own scriptures. Mm. And that's the basis of his use of that story against them. The last sentence there, though one rose from the dead. So is that implying that Lazarus is dead? Yes. Yeah, Lazarus was in Hades. The grave. The, the grave. That's Along right. with Abraham. Yeah. But again, you have to understand this is a, a superstition that Jesus builds on to rebuke the Pharisees. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Mr. Stroud, you had some other thoughts? Well, no. I, you know, I'm glad Mr. Frank brought that up about the one rise from the dead because you go back to verse 22 again where it says the beggar died and was carried by the angels. That's timing. When we look back, when will the beggar, when will 
the angels come to carry God's people. We look back at Matthew 24 and we find the answers to that. So it's timing here when this beggar uh, would be carried by the angels, which means exactly what you said. He is dead. Okay. Let's go to some other scriptures, and I'm going to sort of lay the foundation here, and then I'm going to go to a question from our audience. What, what would you say the fate of sinners is today? Uh, will the unrepentant sinner burn in hellfire? And I know we can go to the Bible for that. A related question from one in our audience says, I heard someone call someone a lukewarm Christian. What happens to lukewarm Christians when they die? Will they go to heaven or hell? Would either of you like to bite on that one first? <laughs> both All right. Well, <laughs> the lukewarm Christian is one who is backslidden. That's a biblical term. Someone who is backtracked on their beliefs and just not on fire to, to serve Christ. Uh, of course, uh, the rewards that we receive in the kingdom are based on our fruitfulness in this age. Christ is the judge. He knows what's in a person's heart, so we can't make a decision as to how Christ would judge them. But getting back to your original question, what happens to the incorrigibly wicked? These are people who turn down God's generous offer of salvation. God is willing, not willing that any should perish, we read in Scripture. He wants all to be saved. But if after time, and they have turned down God's generous offer, then the answer is in Malachi 4.3, that sinners will become ashes under the feet of the saints, that they will be destroyed by a fire, a lake of fire, and they will be consumed. The fire that consumes is the title of that book by Edward Fudge, in fact. So, just to clarify, what you are saying is there actually is literally a hellfire. That's right. But and it's one not that a fire that keeps people alive forever. That's right. It actually burns them up. That's right. Consumes them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mr. Yes. Stroud. Yes, and, and, and Mr. Frank quoted verse 3, but I also would like to quote verse 1. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. I don't know how we could come up with a doctrine to teach that people would be in an ever-burning fire, which shows us one thing about God's Word. 2 Timothy 3 tells, shows us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and the apostles always referred to the Old Testament as Scripture when he talked to Timothy, when Christ talked about it himself. So this verse is a very powerful verse to prove as well, along with what Mr. Frank quoted there in verse 3, that it will leave them neither uh, um, uh, root or branch. There will be nothing left of the incorrigibly wicked. They will be burned up and not spend eternity in, in, in some burning fire forever. Mm. We can add a verse from the Apostle Paul to this as well. Romans 6.23, it's a well-known yes. verse. The wages of sin is death, not eternal life in hell, fire somewhere. Mm -hmm. Death. It means a cessation of life. I was just thinking, you read the scripture in Malachi 4.1 about uh, the wicked will become stubble. I think in our modern societies where a lot of people live in, in cities, we've sort of lost that concept. 
Uh, we have the opportunity here actually in the southern United States to be around a lot of farms. And there are actually farms today that after they plant, they will actually burn down any remaining crop. Uh, we drive down to visit some family in South Carolina and the farmers down there will burn their, their cornfields, mm -hmm. what's left of them. And the only thing left is a little bit of a stubble mm. after the fire. But you're not left with the item itself. And it says mm -hmm. the, the wicked will become stubble. It's mm -hmm. interesting. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Scott, if, you, if we would add also it, um, Ezekiel 18, chapter, uh, chapter 18, verses 4 and verse 20, which reveals to us that... Um, the soul that sins, it shall die. We have a problem with uh, the concept of immortal soul is one of the factors, I believe, that helps people to believe in this eternal hell fire. But that's not what the Bible says. Ezekiel 18.4 says the soul that sin, it shall die. So we find out here that souls die and not spend eternity. As Mr. Frank said, cessation of life. It's over. It's all done. Okay. Yes, another verse is 1 Timothy 6.16. Christ alone has immortality. Mm. So it, we couldn't have in, immortal souls based on that verse. Mm. Now, we want to become immortal, but that's when Jesus returns and transforms all the saints, whether asleep in the grave or alive at the time and transformed. Mm. Well, you're talking about the immortal soul. We'll come back to that concept. <clears throat> it seems like, is, is that not a carryover, that concept of a, an immortal soul, is that not, again, a carryover from the ancient Greeks? Yes, and it gets back into Gnosticism as well, that the idea, the only thing that really counted was the inner spirit, or the soul. That the flesh was evil, the source of all the problems. And so the flesh is a prison house that the spirit or the soul has to be separated from in order to go into eternal bliss. But I'll say some Christian theologians have really um, had to do, jump through some hoops to try to make that fit with New Testament verses that talk about a resurrection of the dead. Putting a, an alive, immortal soul back into a corrupt body, you know, and then to be judged after Jesus returns. Uh, that's what happens uh, with this doctrine. It just leads to confusion. Okay. All right. Well, gentlemen, I think we're getting down here to the end of our discussion. You, you make me think, though, perhaps we should do a, a program in the future on the immortal soul as well, mm -hmm. and we could, we could dig into that a little bit more. As we wind down here now, at the end of the program, uh, Mr. Stroud, we can come to you first. What kind of takeaway do you want to leave our audience with today regarding this concept of an ever-burning hellfire that torments the wicked forever? Well, first what I would say, Dr. Winnett, is that we have to remember to search God's word for the truth. And we have a, a saying within the church that when we talk to people, especially on programs like this and, and our Tomorrow's World program, don't believe us, look into the scriptures, look into God's word. Because in John three sixteen, Jesus made it very clear that uh, God loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son to whoever believes in him. And the word, wording is, will not perish. So I want to leave the, the audience with this. The Bible says that the dead know nothing, that there is no knowledge in the grave. The soul that sins, it will die. 
And most of all, as Mr. Frank just quoted, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There is no eternal presence in uh, what we what has been termed around the world uh, ever burning hell fire. I refuse to believe that there is a loving and the Bible says merciful God who would want to spend eternity listening to people screaming and yelling and burning and in agony for all eternity. When you just think of that concept, it just doesn't make sense. So the great God has a plan and understanding that plan will absolutely show us the incredible mercy of God. So we have to look into God's word, look into God's word. Don't just accept and believe as we see today, many are, are beginning to doubt this concept, even among their own religious teachings. So look into God's word, take God at face value, his word at face value, and, and believe what it says, uh, because he does have a plan, and, and that plan is very vital. I'll close with this. Revelation 20, verse 5 tells us that uh, there is to be another resurrection, and it mentions a second resurrection. Uh, and everyone will live. John 5, Jesus also talks about that everyone who is in the grave will hear his voice, voice and come forth. It uh, doesn't sound like everybody's burning when Christ would state those types of words. So look at God's word. Look at it carefully. Read it. Study it. And search it out to, to know God's truth. Well, thank you. And from what you've both been talking about, and, and Mr. Stroud, from the comments you just made, it sounds very much like if I have relatives who have died and have not listened to God's word or have not known the word of God or have not lived by it or have not developed a relationship with Jesus Christ, not only are they not lost, but they're also not burning in hellfire right now. Which really, as you think about it, that's a very comforting concept, a very comforting biblical idea that lets us know that, yeah, we do worship a very loving, patient God who has a, a plan that goes beyond the grave. Yes. Mr. Frank, your final thoughts. Mr. Stroud referenced John 3.16, and the whole point of that verse is that one of the reasons God sent Jesus to earth was to die for our sins so that we would not die eternally. And, and would, in other words, he's given us a chance for eternal life. For those who reject that offer, though, after God has been very patient with them, there is a real hell that they need to fear. All of us need to fear that if we were to deny God, but it's a fire that will consume the wicked and they will just cease to exist. Uh, wicked, wicked humans cease to exist, but hopefully that will only be a few because God's intention is to save the people that he have made, has made in his own image. And that's one of the reasons that he sent his son as our savior. Thank you for those comments as well. On today's program, we have reviewed some of the pagan and philosophical origins of the eternally tormenting hellfire concept and how it made its way into modern Christianity. There's certainly much more that you could delve into on your own, but hopefully we've given you an idea of some things you can begin to study. We've reviewed some Bible verses that are commonly misused to support the idea of an ever-burning hellfire and shown you where they have come from. And we've looked at other Bible verses that clearly speak the opposite. The biblical truth is that our loving Father, as has just been discussed, is in heaven. And 
he and our elder brother Jesus Christ are not willing that any should perish, but instead they want all to come to repentance. And certainly that is why Jesus Christ died and rose again. There will be a small group, as Mr. Frank just said, of unrepentant sinners who do burn up in the lake of fire at the end of the human time on earth. But the unrepentant today are not now burning in hell, according to the Bible, at least. They're dead in the grave and awaiting the resurrection. For greater biblical insight into this topic, we really encourage you to read or listen to our free booklet, Is This the Only Day of Salvation? You can see it here. You can order that, or you can listen to it, or you can download it at tomorrowsworld.org. Is this the only day of salvation? It's, it's free for you. To learn more about today's news in light of the Bible, we encourage you to tune in each week to TW Now. Next week, we're going to turn a different page, and we're going to examine the question, why are so many nations going to the moon? If you've been watching the headlines, you're seeing that. We also invite you to be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and to like and share today's program. Un until next week, we'll see you next time.